Just wait until I upload my sentience somewhere. <laughs> then I will rule everything. <laughs> Well, hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we ask, what's your pleasure, sir? One issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the secret Cenobite, Mike Thompson. God, what what kind of Cenobite would I be? (laughs) (laughs) That's only for you to know and for us to find out in some really grotesque way. Probably a bunch of comic book pages just like embedded in me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes, I love that already. Well, if you haven't figured it out already, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that really helps with discoverability. Now, I'm incredibly excited for this episode, and I know Mike and I have kind of been teasing it without really teasing it on the show for quite a few reasons, but one of which is because today we're going to be talking about a property that has intrigued me since childhood. We'll be discussing the Hellraiser franchise chronologically. I know it sounds very strange, but we'll be discussing the Hellraiser franchise chronologically, the films, the comics, and the book that started it all. But the main reason I'm so absolutely stoked is that we are joined today by our friend and returning guest, Dan D.G. Chichester. Dan, would you give our listeners a quick introduction, please? Sure. Uh, and I should have really thought about this uh, in terms of comics, and we'll stick with that for the moment. I'm probably best known as a long-term writer on Daredevil, having done a number of big stories that were involved with there, The Fall of the Kingpin and Fall from Grace. Uh, germane to our specific down-below conversation. Today, though, I was one of the principal editors at Epic Comics, which was a division of Marvel at one point in the in the 80s into the 90s, and I was somewhat instrumental in the formation of the Hellraiser comic, the Clive Barker's Hellraiser comic, the anthology. I had been bugging Archie Goodwin, my boss, the editor-in-chief of Epic Comics, that we should get into horror in some way, and then one day this guy Clive Barker comes walking in, and I got to become uh, the editor and the driver of what would become that anthology, which we'll get into more detail, so I won't give away too much beyond that. And we also had you on on episode 18 to talk about Terror Incorporated, which was our Halloween episode of last year. Yes, which was a terrific, fun conversation. And I and I owe you guys these, you know, these little terror buttons, which are made up. So oh, I'm going to send you these. Oh, I, I know. So I, cool. I, I know. I said I'd send them, and I'm, I'm lax in my mail, but I have them right here for you. So that's amazing. Oh, so I mean, we are definitely excited to pick, as it were, pick your brain about this amazing franchise. And not to brag, but in one of the comic forwards, Clive Barker calls Dan one of the Godfathers of Hellraiser, which is a pretty cool title. So we'll we'll definitely be uh, asking him some questions and trying to get some more insider scoops about the uh, franchise if we can. But before we get into that, let's chat a little bit about what we've been reading or watching lately, you know, outside of all of our Hellraiser goodness. I'm sure we've been just chewing into. Mike, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. I recently picked up a few issues of Route 666 from CrossGen. So that is a series from, 
I think the early aughts, CrossGen was mm-hmm. this publisher that kind of exploded onto the scene and did some really cool stuff. And then they they wound up, I think, folding under bankruptcy and they've since been acquired by Disney. And so some of the properties have been brought back by Marvel. But this was their stab at a horror comic. CrossGen had this multiverse built in, like all of their different comics took place on different worlds. And so this one takes place on this planet called Erebus, and it's in a country that is basically the 1950s United States, but it's called the United States of Empyrean. And it it kind of has that sort of innocent feel and like lifestyle and technology of 1950s, you know, Americana. And the lead character is named Cassie, and she has the ability to see and interact with the spirits of dead people. She basically was presumed to be crazy as a kid, and she kind of repressed her ability. But when she gets to college, her roommate is killed in, in a, a kind of like horrific Rube Goldberg of accidents that Cassie accidentally triggers. And she ends up finding out that there are these dark spirits taking the souls of people that have died violent deaths, and they're all tied to this being called the adversary. And they are disguising themselves as kind of like creatures out of folklore and mythology and movie monsters as well. Kind of like B-level movie monsters. Very cool. Yeah, it's really neat. It's cool. And the other thing, though, is that like nobody else can see these things. And so when they're killing people around her, people are assuming it's her. So she's on the run trying to fight these creatures. But everybody thinks that she is this kind of psychotic serial killer. (laughs) Right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's really solid. I like the art a lot. I like the vibe in general. The thing about CrossGen is they did really cool books at the time, and you can find them very cheap these days. They're all over the dollar bins. I love that. Well, what about you, Dan? Reading anything cool right now? Yes, yes, but I paid full price, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was fine because it, it worked out really well. It was a complete surprise because I didn't know anything about it, which was the Department of Truth. So um, uh, oh. James Tinian and uh, yeah. I think Martin Simons uh, or Simmons is the artist, which was a real trip. The Department of Truth is essentially a secret government organization, which uh, is trying to return the status quo of the world while their opposition is basically trying to unleash every conspiracy theory in the world. So sort mm-hmm. of like if the conspiracy theories that are rife and around us, everything from Sasquatch to fake, big, big air quotes around that, school shootings, if they get enough momentum behind them, you know, if enough people believe in them, they become real, right? The conspiracies oh, become real. Cool. So the Department of Truth is trying to downplay this or correct it when these things start to materialize and the, the main character gets dragged into this. And then you don't really know after a certain point well, is the Department of Truth the heroes, or is the other side who's trying to unleash these things the heroes? It's really well done, and that kind of creates a terrific moral gray ground uh, as you go through. But the research that Tinian, uh, you know, put into this is extraordinary. I love conspiracy theories, and I love mysteries, and you know, the paranormal. So, in pulling through these things, he's really obviously dove quite deep into these different topics, which comes through in a really elegant way. It doesn't feel like, oh, here's the exposition about Bigfoot or, or you know, false flags or whatever. It's integrated really well. It's a great read, a lot of fun. Didn't enjoy the second part of it quite so much, but the, the first run really caught me and uh, I totally, totally dug it. Who's publishing that? I believe it's Image. Okay. You know, which obviously Image does a lot of great things because creators come in with great ideas and this is definitely one of them. 
Yeah, we've talked about The Nice House on the Lake, which is one that he's yeah. been doing mm-hmm. for DC's Black Label. Yeah. That's very good. Do, do so you good. think, you're, I want to ask you guys this, uh, I've noticed something with comics, you know, of late, like this, they all have novel-like titles now. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing, like Route 666, you know, is a very classic title for a comic, but these nice houses on the lake, or something is wrong with the children, or the Department of Truth, all are getting these chunky novel-like titles, and even the the I logo like designs it. like, it's interesting isn't it it's, yeah it's, there's uh, a there's another one from image called what's the furthest place from here or the furthest place we can get from here i think yeah mm. like right but i wonder if this has like a strategic thing you know where it, these uh, I'm, I'm trying to see what drives it but my own conspiracy so mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i have been uh reading And I just dove back into it. And this is more for like some palate cleanser because I have just been in the world of Hellraiser. I was like getting a tattoo for like four hours yesterday, like reading Hellraiser comics. Like, Oh, I was going to say, did you get the the Lamont (laughs) configuration? Let me see what you got. Like, you know, four hours of pinhead looking at longingly from your arm or something that's oh my gosh yeah no i did get a cool a cool little uh wicked character on my leg but uh not a lament (laughs) configuration sadly although she might come out of one that that i could see that happening but i i was reading just today to kind of palate cleanse and last night when i got home uh with just some (laughs) some classic sabrina the teenage witch just the Mm. classic not the not the hail satan sabrina but the classic you know sabrina the classic yeah the classic actually it's black and white comics just mm-hmm, you know a nice mm-hmm. palette cleanser from kind of the chaos of just like oh we'll have a nice little story that's gonna wrap into a bow and you know ding the end um <laughs> so yeah that's that's just been a fun little light that's something i actually jump into every once in a while just to you know have some fun with comics it's- Especially if you've been investing yourself into uh, Hellraiser, that's definitely needs a palate cleanser as a as a certain point. <laughs> exactly. I know there aren't going to be any chains hooking it like Sabrina out of the screen or pulling her skin off or anything. Yep, so it's right. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's actually shift into our main topic, though mm-hmm. the reason that we are all here, Hellraiser. So. Like I said, we will be going through the timeline of the Hellraiser franchise. We will ask our amazing guests to fill in some of the details of the comic side of the franchise, hopefully, as well as some other places that you can find more Puzzle Box (laughs) action, including some new upcoming projects slated to come out soon. So let's begin at the beginning, because Clive Barker published his novella The Hellbound Heart in Dark Harvest's third annual of its Night Visions anthology in November of 1986. And the story follows Frank Cotton, whose endless search for self-gratification led him to be in possession of a mysterious puzzle box called the Lament Configuration, which pulled him into a life of pleasure and pain that he thought he would never escape. That is, until he is able to manipulate and kill his way back into existence when his brother and his brother's wife move into the house where he was killed. (laughs) So the Cenobites, mutilated and tortured creatures who were once human, come back and pull Frank and potentially others back with them into the depths of hell. Or is it heaven? I mean, they are (laughs) angels to some. (laughs) They are. (laughs) So production of the film because there was a film, of course, mm-hmm. actually got started around the same time as it was published, which I think is wildly quick timing. This was also Barker's directing debut after being unhappy with prior cinematic adaptations of his works. 
Christopher Fig agreed to produce, and the film was funded by New World Pictures for $900,000. The film was set to be shot in a seven-week time period at the end of 1986, but New World pushed it to 10 weeks, which seems like a really quick turnaround, although it was kind of shot in one place, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Really, it was shot in the house. Yeah, it was kind of like a a bottle episode, you know, Mm -hmm. made into a movie. Yeah, exactly. And... While it was kind of extended and made from a a novella into kind of a full-length feature film kind of style, there was one big change which I thought was interesting, and I I would love to know why this was the case. But in the book, one of the main characters, Kirsty, was played Mm -hmm. as having unrequited feelings for the brother who moves into the house, Frank's brother. However, they ended up changing that relationship to being his daughter in the film, which makes it even creepier because Frank is definitely hitting on Kirsty, so it's like a whole uncle gross vibe thing <laughs> so i mean why the change i'm not sure make it more yucky yeah maybe i mean it, I would, it makes I would, him more I would sleazy guess that yeah i would definitely yeah. say why not let's double down on it okay yeah yeah no i could see that i could see that they're like we're already headed in this direction let's just roll right. the whole way down so the film started with a working title of sadomasochists from beyond the grave oh it's so good like it's so good (laughs) (laughs) and barker did want to keep hellbound but fig suggested hellraiser which as you know ultimately stuck Mm -hmm. hellraiser was first shown in the first charles cinema september 10th of 1987 so just shy of a year when the book was first published it was of course starring doug bradley as the now infamous pinhead and the main cenobite And apparently, fun fact, he had trouble hitting his marks and moving on set due to the black contacts that (laughs) basically made him unable to see. And in combination with that, he had these flowy, drapey roads, and he apparently was having trouble not tripping on them and was having trouble maneuver around and had some help getting to his his marks. And so it seemed like it was just a whole thing. Well, I mean, if you look at the behind the scene photos, too, they were wearing a lot of prosthetics. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine they were easy to move around in in general. Oh, no. no Some of those I mean, big ones where they have the big frames around your head. Yeah. It's like you got to remember that when you go through a doorway. Right. Right. Or poor Nick Vince wearing the chatterer gear on top of his head. You know, that's yeah. Just, yes. You know, oh, God. Oh. Talk about not being able to see. Seriously. <laughs> Ultimately, the film grossed. million and launched the franchise that we know and love today. Mm -hmm. Hellraiser 2 was released on December 23rd, 1988, this time directed by Tony Randall, and was somewhat of a continuation of the first film, grossing $12.1 million at the box office. And this is where we reach the point where our amazing guest jumps into the picture, because the comic started being published by Marvel's Epic Imprint in 1989 with Dan's involvement. So, Dan, as we mentioned, Clive Barker had amazing things to say about you as one of the, you know, bases of the Hellraiser, you know, kind of overview, what it, which is pretty neat. Would you tell <laughs> yes, us a little bit? Of, I mean, that's, that's so cool. I mean, you, you wrote you it down and everything. It's in writing. You, you can't say that <laughs> quote enough as far as I'm concerned at this point, you know. <laughs> well, tattoos, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I read that quote and I was like, oh, hey, I know that guy. Like, you know, (laughs) the godfather of Hellraiser. I was like, our Dan? (laughs) I'm going going to the tattoo parlor right after this and just kind of getting that right down here. It's like, you know, little, little like puzzle box on each end of it. So your question back, back to the, the Hellraiser, how did this thing come to be? 
I was working at Epic uh, as a associate editor, which was kind of like almost an editor, except they don't pay me as an editor. And Archie Goodwin, who was my boss and just a great mentor and, and influence, was well known for his involvement with horror anthologies and eerie and creepy and the Warren publishing empire. And so I was always on Archie about, we should do a new horror comic, right? I love horror. You've done horror. Why aren't we doing horror? I'll, you know, here's my chance to kind of, you know, connect things together. And Archie being Archie and very smart and knowing his business and, and the business uh, was like, it's not going to sell kid. <laughs> horror doesn't sell. And a horror anthology especially is not going to sell. There's no hook, right? You know, it's, it's just not going to work. The hook, though, would become Clive Barker, because when Marvel at one point and being passed around was purchased by New World Pictures, which was the producer, as you said, of Hellraiser, and there was a comics fan who had become a good friend of mine at New World in their international distribution, Eric Saltzgaber. Eric was friends with Clive as well, and so in talking to Clive and talking about comics, Eric was the first one to sort of broach the introduction. Clive Barker would like to come in and talk about some comic ideas. Well, yeah, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> so Clive Barker is going to come in this day, and this was my biggest, most awful geek moment of all time, because Mark Chiarello, uh, who would later become one of the uh, main art editors at DC Comics and a terrific guy and a terrific artist in his own right, was working as our basically our receptionist in the Epic offices. Well, 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 you know, below... <laughs> his capabilities, but he just wanted to be in the Marvel offices. You know, this was like his easy in. So Mark would usually go out and meet guests, you know, that were coming in. That was part of his, you know, remit. And, but the minute I heard Clive was there, I literally pushed Mark out of the way and, you know, <laughs> squeed my way up the hallway to like, you know, hi, Mr. Barker, I'm Dan Chichester. You know, I got one of the editors at Bad Epic. You know, let me take you back to meet Archie. And Clive being Clive, you know, as I would later discover, you know, uh, utterly charming and cordial and, you know, oh, it's great to meet you. And I'm not going to try to do a Clive accent. And then, you know, but could give a shit. He's there to meet Archie Goodwin. Right. And, you yeah. know, Archie's, you know, uh, uh, you know, Clive is Clive, obviously. And Archie is bigger even than Clive in, in, in his own way, you know, from reputation. They go in the office and they close the door. And I don't, th I don't know what they're talking about. But afterwards, you know, Clive leaves without saying goodbye to me. I want to note. And <laughs> that would that would be fine. Might have said goodbye to Mark, but Archie comes in, you know, immediately afterwards and says, "All right, kid, you get what you you know wish for. <laughs> you know, I hope that's going to work out for you. You know, you get what you deserve." Because he said we're going to do an anthology and it's going to be called <laughs> Clive Barker's Hellraiser. So that was the impetus. Clive wanted to turn the Hellraiser mythology into comics, and the anthology was you know the idea that. That was going to drive it. And with Clive's name value at that point, right? At this point, Stephen King had defined him as, I've seen the future of horror and its name is Clive Barker. That was the quote on the books. That's mm. probably what fueled you know, the quick turnaround to some degree. Clive was everywhere. He was an incredible deal maker, as evidenced by coming into you know, comics and other places. There wasn't a project he didn't have going in one place or the other. So he was, he was hot stuff. And you know, it was a good catch for us. Other comic companies would be doing stuff. Eclipse famously were doing some adaptations of his his work at the time, Eclipse Comics. But by getting the Hellraiser mythology, you know, this was our impetus to to sort of bring it forward. Now, all we had was the first movie, the Hellbound Heart novella, 
and we had the screenplay for the second movie, which oh, was wow. not yet out, right? Oh, cool. That was it. So, okay, what do you do with this, actually, right? Because we knew we couldn't just be doing open a puzzle box and chains come out and, you know, rip you apart. There had to be a lot more to that. So we had to convene basically a brain trust to figure out what is the actual mythology of hell, right? What is, what are the Cenobites? Why are they there? What's the big diamond thing, you know, which is, you know, in, in, Mm -hmm. in the second movie, Mm -hmm. what is the ins and outs of hell? Why do they do what they do? And so there were a few sessions which would end up being myself. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like nothing at this point, right? Remember, you know, I'm like 24, you know. Because you had started working for Marvel in college, right? Yeah, 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 right before, right before I graduated. And so here I am in a meeting with Clive Barker, Archie Goodwin, Eric Saltzgaber, we brought in because Eric was, had a big Creative Jones, even though he was, you know, selling international film rights, you know, at New World, he really wanted to write, he really wanted to ultimately direct. You know, that was, you know, where he was coming at it to get into film. And then in some weird way, a horror author, an author named Philip Nutman got involved as well. So Phil was creative in his own right. We had the misperception that he was a little bit more of Clive's total inner circle. So we had sort of invited, okay, well, I guess we'll bring him in. And he did contribute things, you know, but it was kind of a weird thing. After the fact, we sort of found out that oh, well, he's not really as connected, but it was just a weird mix. But we we would discuss in these couple of sessions, what does it mean? And it wasn't just Clive pontificating, well, it's this and it's this. He had a lot of that. I mean, clearly he'd been thinking about this and living in this world, or maybe he originally came from there for all I know. Um, <laughs> in, in, a, in a very moist, you know, dressed in black leather sort of way, which he was not at all. Um, and he had ideas, but it was a, it was an incredible thinking about where he was at that point and who he was. He was one of the most giving, sharing, open, creative spirits I think anybody could want to work with. You know, he was totally receptive to ideas, would build on things you'd throw out give things and say, what do you think of that? And so the output of that, you know, was these reams of notes of, well, the Cenobites are about discipline and this is their mandate. And Leviathan, the, the diamond god is this and all of these pieces, which then had to be drew together. So then I became the author of that piece I sent you earlier this week, which was the Hellraiser Bible, which then took all those ideas, brought them together. And that was what we would send out to the creators saying that we're doing a new anthology. It's based on Hellraiser. And while you may have seen the movie and you might see the new movie and you might have some ideas, this is all the stuff you've got to work with, actually. Well beyond just a puzzle box and a skeevy uncle, you know, or you want to play with those two? Sure. But so that suddenly gave a lot of folks and us a mandate, you know, to to expand this world much beyond the confines of the films. And I think in a lot of ways, even beyond where the films would go, we started to play with territory that they would not actually even go into. Because Pinhead, I think, became jokier as time went on. He became more like sort of the quippy guy. Mm -hmm. And we kept it pretty moist and evil (laughs) in in the comics. That That was the world we were occupying. Yeah. Well, and, and the comics like had just such, it was just one heavyweight after another as I was reading through all these. And yeah, 
you know, the individual books aren't easily available digitally, but you can find a lot of them on Hoopla collected under the Hellraiser masterpiece collections. Right, right. Some other some some other company published those, which I might yeah. add I got a nothing out of, but uh hey, whatever. I'm, I mean, they uh, credit you at least. <laughs> they sit there and they they note it in the in the uh in the pages they talk about the original editors. So th- there is that at least I There is that. Like, there is that. But I mean, you know, it was you, it was Darwin Cook, it was Lana Wachowski before she transitioned. It was yep, yep. Mike Mignola, like Mm-hmm. You know, both Wachowskis, I think, are in there. Oh, okay. I, I only, I only saw Lana, and then like Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. Oh yeah, I went after everybody. I swung that that what stick I had pretty hard in terms of mailing those Bibles out. Mailing, we had to mail things in those days. <laughs> uh, you know, to to everybody, the biggest name I could find. I mean, I had Archie's name on the cover as well, and you know, you know, Archie was mentioned in my cover letter and all that stuff. So. He was a pretty good hook. Everybody wanted to work with Archie Goodman. So he was my, my catch as well as you get to play in Clive Barker's universe. You get to work with Archie, who's my boss, even though I was the editor you know, and the driver. But we went after everybody. And we got a lot of folks, more than I probably had any right to expect. Some never responded. And there were a few that I never you know, got. But we got some really great, you know, great names based on that hook that we put out there. And honestly, chain, they're lost. So yeah, yeah, you know, and some people it may just not have been their thing too. I mean, right. in reading the Bible, as you saw, and we'll have an offer for all listeners to get the Bible later. <laughs> you know, we didn't shy away from this. Is some pretty evil shit, you know, or you know, different. So that just may not have been people's thing, right? It may not have been. I don't want to play in a world like that. Um, I don't want to explore that world at that level. Um, that's not the type of you know, story I want to be involved with. So that may have been part of it too. To me, it was like, well, why wouldn't you? But in, in the retrospect of many years, I'm like, yeah, I can see how that might have turned some people off. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I think you sort of well, answered our next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, the well, familiarity? So, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I'd so, seen the movie and I'd read the yeah. novel or the novella um, because mm-hmm. I was a big Stephen King fan and, and still am. So if he says somebody's the future of horror, I'm going to figure out what that is. Um, but you read it and then you go to the movie because the movie had that great poster, totally unusual looking character, angel to some, demon to others, didn't look like anything else and was not like anything else in the days of Friday the 13th. And after the first Freddy Krueger movie, you know, again, becoming jokier as time goes on, mm-hmm. here was something that was staking out a claim that was much, much different. So to see a movie like that, while it had its ups and downs in terms of the rhythms, it's totally true to itself in the sense of, yeah, we're just going to yank you into this world and, and screw with you. But never, never any expectation of like that I would work in that world and be so involved that I would get a Godfather credit. I'm going to keep, keep holding on to that, guys. And- <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, what's everyone's favorite Hellraiser movie and why? Should I start? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Please uh, do, yeah. Know, um, I mean, I'm going to go with the first one, just because it was so unexpected. And I didn't know what it was, you know, beyond the poster and sort of reading the book. I don't even know if I read the book beforehand. I read the book afterwards. 
And I think it was just, you know, the, the darkness, the, the, the richness of it and the, and the reveling in it, right? There's, there's, a, there's a passion to those Cenobites, you know, in the way that they operate and come in while there's ostensibly good or, you know, protagonists, I guess, you know, you might think of them who are, who are well, I hope they went out against the Cenobites. In a lot of ways, you're just being enriched in this world. You know, who are these characters? You know, what are their rhythms? What are their rituals? And that's what it really is. You know, calling it sadomasochist from beyond the grave, you know, there are obviously a lot of uh, sadomasochist uh, tenets, you know, to what the Cenobites are and how they operate. And, you know, that was certainly part of my research, you know, as I went on to know more about that world. So that feeling of all that stuff coming up on the screen and pulling you in, to me, was uh, just magic. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tack on there because I agree that the first one, I mean, it's just classic. And I remember being a kid and like, I was always just, I was always into spooky stuff, even as a kid. And even if Mm -hmm. my parents wouldn't let me rent the movies, it doesn't mean I wasn't like (laughs) staring at the covers of these movies, wanting to rent them. And then when I got old enough to like use my own money to rent movies, my parents were like, you know what, whatever, you're weirdo, just watch what you're going to watch, right? (laughs) And so I would rent all those like horror movies that I'd been staring at the covers of for years and was like yes this is what i wanted the whole time (laughs) right right so but that first one just like that introduction you're right it's just so different it has just a different feel from so many other all of the other horror films i mean it's Mm -hmm. just like just introducing the cenobites the whole concept of having to solve something to even get to that point is just such an interesting concept and I mean, everything about it. I I loved the way that they did the makeup and just the fact that it was just centered at that one house. And it was like, you can find horror in one house. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a whole world. Like, I Mm -hmm. mean, you're going into hell, but like, you don't have to have a whole world. You can have just this one house and be terrorized within this one space. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the way it starts off, right? It's the that first line of what's your pleasure, right? It's not, it's not... (laughs) It's wait a minute. This is horrifying, and but it's pleasure. So, mm-hmm. which I mean, at mm-hmm. the time was such a a different take on both horror and sexuality. Which I mean, that's exactly that's Clive in a nutshell. Like, mm-hmm. like I love. I have read a lot of his books over the years, and I love the way he writes. But he uses sexual violence. And and that oftentimes is kind of like, oh, I'm just going to skip a couple of pages. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's a little outside my comfort zone. But like he he does things that are so fascinating. And Hellraiser, yeah. I feel like at the time was was fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love the first movie. I think the first movie is is very much a lightning rod in that, you know, it just did something so different in the same way mm-hmm. that like Candyman also did something very different. You know, which is absolutely by Barker creation. I've got a really soft spot for the fourth movie, Hellraiser Bloodline, though. Like, <laughs> like it's not it's not an objectively good movie, but I've realized that I tend to enjoy things that have a lot of potential, even mm-hmm. if that potential doesn't quite work out in the end. Right. We've talked about this. Like one of my favorite comics is the Armageddon 2001 crossover from D.C., <laughs> which is a fantastic setup. It's got all this potential and then it doesn't quite stick the landing. It, in fact, mm-hmm. it, it just, it, it does a face plant. It's fine. But 
I liked the idea of this one family being at war with immortal beings and then seeing the, mm. the skirmishes and battles kind of unfold over the centuries and then, you know, the conclusion of the war in what's basically Hellraiser in space. And <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Oh, look, it's it, Freddy in space. You know, it's everybody's here. Leprechaun. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. le- but, you know, like I, I liked also the way that the movie fleshed out things like like the history of the Lamont configuration. I liked that there were things like a changing society in hell. Like there's the whole mm-hmm. bit where Pinhead is talking to Angelique and when he confronts her, he says things are different in hell since you've left. They've become more ordered now. And that there are obviously these different factions of hell that don't necessarily get along. And I actually really enjoyed watching baby Adam Scott vamping it up as the like <laughs> the weird corporate villain. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I like the idea at the end of creating kind of like an inverse Lamont configuration that destroys the portal to hell. Like, I thought that was cool. It it's not an objectively good movie, like I said, but it's it's interesting. Also, weird cameo from the Polish brothers as security guards that get merged into a twin Cenobite because they went on to be relatively, you know, successful movie directors for a while. Mm hmm. So, yeah. It does introduce concepts, and and that's you know probably that's part of the the appeal, right? It's not it's not playing it safe necessarily. Maybe it's not syncing them all up. I think that may have been the last one I saw. I know there's been nine of them, I think altogether, but ten, ten, <laughs> not yeah. including the the newest one or ten up to no, this. No, there are ten up to this point. Yeah, ten up to a, this point. This okay, the, new, so, the newest one is the eleventh, I think. Yeah, I, I yeah, and so I don't know what they continue to do or if they've just gotten into a you know same old same old but like leprechaun at at a certain point i just didn't know anymore (laughs) oh don't worry we'll go through them (laughs) oh good good okay i have to i don't i don't know i want to like only (laughs) briefly don't worry i was gonna say what did i do to deserve this like come on man this is this is part of the sweet sweet suffering of hell you know yeah i know right yeah you did sign up for this you solved the puzzle and here we are (laughs) exactly exactly there you go sometimes the the puzzle is just an email you answer Uh (laughs) uh-huh well there's a lot of hellraiser comics from this era so we asked you for some specific stories to read and you recommended the following Mm -hmm. warm red by jason strand and bernie wrightson Dance of the Fetus by Ted McKeever, and those were mm-hmm. both in the first issue, and yep. Dead Things Rot by you and Mike Mignola, and the Devil's Brigade storyline that you and Dwayne McDuffie ran. And mm-hmm. what made you suggest those specific stories to us? Probably the ones that were just top of mind. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that they, well, especially the first two, you, you know, as an anthology, once we had the, the go you know, I just started to kind of collect stories and we'll get to the problem with that maybe in a little bit when you sort of ask the question about what would I might've done things differently, but an anthology has got to have enough stories to kind of roll with it. And so we needed an inventory of stories. So once some creators just started to say, yeah, I want to play, it just started to kind of collect stories. So they didn't really know what was going to be in that first issue until we then started to evaluate. So, you know, Ted might've done that story you know, a couple months after something else, but it was then in mixing and matching and saying, what are our strongest things? And I think that, you know, he took such an unusual approach to it, you know, a fetus that is not part of the solving of the puzzle, but is in existence to some extent and has some sentience to some extent as the mother 
has solved the puzzle and has had to pay the price for that, well, then where does the fetus, you know, fit in? It's a totally unusual question. Ted ran with the Bible and then wrote, you know, his own book of revelations around that to kind of, you know, conjure up this idea. So that to me was just that next level stuff that we really wanted. And so that's why it stands out to me. And the fact that it's in the first issue is just, I want to, I want to go all guns out. If they cancel this book after the first issue, I want to pack this with things that are really, really strong. And I think that was warm read by, um, by Jay Stranad and, and Bernie, of course, Bernie writes in, you know, a God of any comics, but especially horror comics. That was a great get in there. And what Jay had done was create, I think, a total crystallization of the best of a heart of a of an expected Hellraiser story, right? Sexuality, betrayal, uh, an incredibly new a new Cenobite face that had reflections of Pinhead in it, but was new and had his own mandate and his own way of speaking. But it was almost like the next the next level there was advancing sort of what we knew, but but putting it in a new and fresh way. And, uh, and I just felt it, it just, it just felt so right. And it felt so horrifying. It felt so horrifying. In fact, that that was my big challenge with that first issue. The publisher actually said, no, you're not going to run this first issue with the story in it. It's too disturbing at this day and age. Of course, that seems ridiculous, but mm-hmm. back in whatever this was, 89, 90, they said, that's too disturbing. It's too sexual. Um, you know, the nudity, you know, in it, the disturbing things about it. We don't want to, you got to pull this. You got to pull this from this book. We'll run it in another issue, but not in the first issue. And and I made a couple of arguments. You know, my back was up. I was young and full of piss and vinegar and said, well, the book is called Clyde Barker's Hellraiser. It's not called just Hellraiser. It's called Clyde Barker's Hellraiser. This is exactly what this book should be delivering every issue are stories like this that disturb you. If you pull this from this issue, you will never run it, right? The excuse will always be that you will never come back to the story. So I dug my heels and I actually threatened to quit as if they could care less, but, but I did. I said, <laughs> if, if you don't, if you pull this out, and I would quit soon after, but you know, for my own reasons, but I said, if, if you pull the story, you know, this book has been defanged and, and you know, I'll walk, uh, which got me actually not meaning to use it in that way, but would then earn me some additional creative cred with the creator community because I'd stuck up. I was stuck up, but I stuck up, you know, for the story. So I think those two, for those reasons, really were. Dead Things Rot is self-serving, right? That's a that's a story that I wrote with Mike Mignola. It's so good, though. It's so good. Thank you, thank you. And and I, it it is a creepy story. It's actually been called out a couple of times as, you know, if you want a creepy story from comics, you know, this is a good one. Mike had the idea for the for the clown. He might have had the idea for the cannibal. You know, he was an unusual and great guy to work with, but he had like pieces and then I brought them together. And then I think I ended the the dead things rot, you know, twist at the end of it. But it just feels, I mean, obviously working with somebody like him is, is terrific. But again, it feels like it has that wonderful awfulness to it <laughs> that both yeah. delivers on a on a good twist, not just some kind of EC comics twist, but a twist that comes out of out of the world. So that's why I call that out. And the Devil's Brigade was a, you know, was a flawed, but I think rightly ambitious project where while this was an anthology and would remain an anthology with a diversity of stories, you know, we had a thought at one point, this was by the point that Marcus McLaurin had 
taken over as the the editor on the book, but I had attached myself, <laughs> you know, I, I think for all time as the consulting editor. And I would also write the intros and, and this type of thing just so I'd stay associated with it. But he and I were talking, you know, angles and we said, well, maybe if we had a persistent story that might play more into comics expectation of continuity, right? The comics at that point were probably more ingrained in readers' minds as something you follow from month to month for certain titles. Mm -hmm. So if we had a group of characters and a situational scenario that you could follow, maybe that would help boost the sales more or, you know, create a consistency of readership more. And so that's why we came up with this angle that there's a certain thing that hell wants to achieve. It's assigned this to a certain number of Cenobites in a way. Leviathan has basically commanded that they must do this and they must trick certain humans into either solving or avoiding certain puzzles. And so that was a longer form story that we then parsed out amongst a group of creators and said, here's the through line. Dwayne McDuffie and I had come up with the, the main through line and then handed the pieces out to the different creative teams and said, do what you want, have fun, but you got to be here by the end of the story, right? The character has to advance to this point. This has to have happened. But how you do it, you know, is your creative charge. It just has to land here by the next thing. And then he and I had were co-authors on, I would say, maybe the main main story in some ways to try to bring it all together and and see if the Cenobites achieve what they want. So I think it was a big, ambitious story, but would probably ultimately end up working better if somebody brought all of them together into one collection on its own. And I don't know if anybody ever has, but I think ambitious. There's a lot of really good stories in there, but ultimately it's kind of flawed when you think about that mixed in with the other anthology stories and the and the schedule that the book was on at that point was which was was it might have been once every other month or something like that. Yeah, I think it was like just quarterly. Too, yeah, so it's just too drawn out, you know, to to maintain the the thrust. But I like the idea of it a lot. Yeah. Well, what are each of your favorite stories from the comics? Hmm. Um, well, again, I can be self-serving like really quickly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my, I mean, my we, absolute, we accept that here. We do you accept, accept that, that here. here. That, that's yeah. allowed. I mean, my, my absolute favorite story is that I wrote was, would be Jihad, which was the Hellraiser Nightbreed crossover, mm. which is as bug fuck mm. as any story could probably possibly be. <laughs> we actually found a copy of that recently at our uh mm -hmm. at one of our dollar bins it wasn't at the dollar bin at the satanic temple you know um but it's, it's <laughs> um their basement sale but um i mean i love that i mean i i love it because i authored it but i also just think it shouldn't have worked and it does i think so it's just crazy and i think it hits all the the ultimate notes on things but there are a couple of others that that st stuck to my mind when you, you brought this up one would be um and again, it ended up being, I think, in the first or second issue, just because it was done later, but I, I wanted to bring all our tools you know, forward, which was a, a story called Dead Man's Hand by Sholly Fish and, and Dan Spiegel, which is a little kind of like Western. So, you know, it's a different time period. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a tight little story. It goes places that you don't expect it to. And the thing that really stuck out in my mind, Sholly was a nice guy. I didn't really know him that well at that point and and he came in and he started to pitch the story to me you know and at first i'm like i'm kind of rolling my eyes internally i'm not being disrespectful but i'm saying 
oh, okay, this is the type of story I said, I don't want the Bible, right? This is, it's going to go someplace and, and he just surprised the shit out of me <laughs> with where he did take it, which endeared it to me even more and endeared him, him to me anymore. And he would come back at least once or twice more with similar approaches. And then um, Dwayne McDuffie did a story that I then assigned to Kevin uh, O'Neill, who was just an insane British artist, well-known for many things, especially now the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but at that point, martial law. And mm. Dwayne wrote this tight little story called The Writer's Lament, which is essentially that the puzzle that has been solved is, is a writer has, has written the perfect screenplay, I think it was. Mm. And that was the puzzle. How do you write the perfect screenplay? And so by doing that, you know, he, he conjures a very particular hell which uh, Dwayne got in lots of digs about the whole creative process and the editorial process, hopefully not me as an editor, but uh, wow. it really stood out as a great combination of, of metaphor and fun and derangement, especially once Kevin got involved with his particular art. For those who can't see the video feed, Jessica was vigorously nodding when Dan brought this up. <laughs> yeah, dead man. I was, I was really tied by, so I'm just going to go into my own and we can move on to yeah, the yeah. second mic because I'm rolling with this. Because yeah, no, Dead Man Hand was my, was my, one of my favorites. And then my second favorite was Dear Diary, which was also yes, by Sholly. Yes, also by Sholly. Yes, one was yes. Good. And this one was so good because here's the thing. It wasn't violent at all. No. It, not no. at all. It did not have any violence, but mm -hmm. it just the whole thing the whole time you're like, where's this going to go? Where's this going to go? And it goes in a completely different direction than you think it is. Yep. And yep. there's still that, there's still the emotional devastation behind it. And this one, it's exactly. not mm -hmm. physical devastation. It's emotional devastation, which mm -hmm. I, you could feel on the page when you got to that last page, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. this is where we ended up. Dear Diary has been living rent free in my head. For a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's and, not yeah, my favorite job. But like, yeah, but it's great. And mm -hmm. even the way it was done, where all of the panels were, I'm looking at it again because it's just beautiful. All of the panels are written on actual diary pages that go with what's happening in the storyline, yep. which is also so interesting and such a cool touch. So I think all in all, that was a good one. There was a lot of artistic freedom, I think, throughout the all the stories. You know, there's high caliber storytelling and and then we had the pinups you know that sort of scattered through showing different scenes and cenobites and yeah and just um you know there's just some fabulous creative work at work in the book i think and i think it kept it it kept it really interesting because you weren't it was a totally different style like the next story would be a totally different drawing yep. style and writing style mm -hmm. than the one before it and the story would have a different vibe but it mm -hmm. all worked together that's great to hear yeah. Mike, what was well, your Mike, favorite? what about you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like, you know, I'm, this is not me like just, you know, blowing smoke, but I really did enjoy <laughs> Dead Things Around. I thought that was a great one because, you know, Mignola's art was so perfect mm -hmm. for Hellraiser and they've got that spread where it shows the guy who's like partially disassembled in hell, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Yes. And, you know, and it's got yes. all the elements of like, you know, it's got the torture, it's got the villain. It, it, it just works really well. But the one that I actually found myself the most charmed by was mm -hmm. called Taste the Darkness. And it's by John Rosam and Bo Hampton and Richard Starkings. And it's basically this photographer named Daphne who has come across the Lamont configuration at a junk shop for 250, solves it 
because she's really good at puzzles. And the, the Cenobite that shows up is like really demoralized at this news because he's like, well, like, I can't really take you back because you don't really want to go and you don't want anything. I can't grant you anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, I can't go back empty handed. And so Daphne says, well, like, why don't you take some of my photography? Because those come from my soul. And it's one of those ones where like the Cenobite doesn't actually seem all that enchanted at what he's doing, but it was mm. just kind of this, it was this oddly funny little story. You know, I liked the bit where he makes the configuration harder and he says, okay, so if you solve it this time, then I know you really want to come. And she looks at it and she's like, it still doesn't look that hard. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I liked the power dynamic shift. I liked that the art was this beautiful watercolor style illustration and it just, it felt kind of a little bit funny and refreshing mm. and, you know, just kind of like in the middle of all this darkness because it's again collected in one of the uh, the masterpiece collections and it's in the middle of like you know, all these stories where you know after a while you're like I feel like I need to go watch Schindler's List for a pick me up and yeah right. yeah it felt like kind of that necessary levity that you need mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was definitely a, a a sense of trying to vary you know the tone of the stories within the book and when we would start to do the mix and match having the stories mm-hmm. assembled you know there was a sense of trying to vary it you know if you're going to do a really hardcore story here then here's maybe a more thoughtful one if you're going to do a story in present day do we have one that's in the future or the past or something like that so that we could start to show the spread of what we're doing and make sure that we weren't just being this one note you know puzzles and chains type of riff you know on that same vein dan can you tell us about any ideas that ended up flopping and didn't wind up in the comics um i I can't think of anything that, I mean, anything that flopped just never went past the proposal stage. Mm-hmm. You know, people had to pitch me beforehand, either written or in Sholly's case, because he was in the office, you know, he worked there, you know, he came in and he said, can I pitch you, you know, on the story, but you had to pitch me before. So nobody was doing, doing something. So there would be people who would come in with what I would say would be the straight up EC comics. And I love EC comics, but you know, but the straight up, here's the O. Henry twist, you know, totally at the end. The morality play. Right. Here's the morality play or here's the, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reveling in this, you know, I'm reveling in the devils and the chains and I want to rip people apart. I want to rip some women apart. And I want to just walk down the hall and just don't ever come back (laughs) here. (laughs) So there were people who would sort of throw that, that at me and those would, I would say pre-flops, <laughs> you know, they just never made it, yeah. you know, to it. There wasn't anything that moved past a certain point that didn't deserve or I didn't deserve it because I had approved it or maybe Marcus had approved it, you know, later. Mm-hmm. I think the things that the things that flopped would be things that I I bought and should have been harder on editorially that that maybe were just not up to the par of that warm red or that dead man's hand or that you know, Dance of the Fetus or other, you know, high caliber ones, which is maybe a danger of anthologies. There's a great uh, quote that's always stuck in my mind from, uh, you know, Rod Serling, who knew a few things about anthology series Mm -hmm. in the Twilight Zone, you know, which he created and and said, well, a third of them are really great. A third of them are okay. And a third of them are dogs. And so, you know, if Rod Serling can say a third of his creations are dogs, then Maybe not so bad, but in retrospect, I'm a little I'm a little hard on myself to say that we should have been a little bit more 
choosy about mm. how certain things were either purchased or how they were ultimately executed. There was one guy who did something, and he pitched a story, and the story was okay, but he came in with the most, and there's no other way to put it, the most racist illustrations I could oh, possibly man. imagine. It was, yeah. it was sort of, um, you know, African-American characters with, you know, distorted features, and, and he was just, I'm looking at it, and, you know, this is a much less enlightened era, but clearly just there's nothing there's nothing defensible about this like it wasn't you're not you're not doing this as a parody quote unquote or creating you know this some kind of metaphor world and you're going to come around somewhere else it was just this dude's way of drawing these type of people and i was pointing it out to him saying what is this and he's like what what you know it's fun and I, exactly that that's the expression uh, and i'm like listen this isn't going any further if you can't you know change this up i'm paying you a kill fee on it or we're walking away from the story which i think is what i ultimately did yeah yeah that's not the kind of scary i want to do here's the thing that shit was still going on yeah like, but still at, does yeah. go on at at that point in time it was still pretty prevalent because we've talked about continuity comics they had a series called mm. the crazy man that we talked about a few episodes back and mm -hmm. the first issue is egregiously racist with how it draws people from this made-up african country mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. or oh, now okay the, the, this is the other thing is uh in in the debbie does dallas comics they yeah. actually had an artist who was really good mm -hmm. but people of color were drawn in a way that were very they they had like very exaggerated features like like black people had like big lips and like it was exactly what this was yeah yeah and it was yeah. really bad like, I mean, you know, and the thing is, is, these were both being published after Hellraiser was. I mean, mm -hmm. like, it's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, that's not, that's not the type of scary I wanted to be in, in the business of. And so yeah. Um, yeah. that would have been uh, a flop. Well, good on you. Well, the initial run of the Hellraiser comics ran from 1989 to 1992 with a total of 20 mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. And... During that time, other Hellraiser comics were published through Epic, including Clive Barker's Book of the Damned, a Hellraiser Companion, and that spanned four issues from 91 to 93. There were two issues of Hellraiser versus Nightbreed, as you mentioned. Uh, Jihad, 1992, was a big year uh, for mm -hmm. Hellraiser comics, as there were five different single-issue comics published, including an Epic Book 1 Hellraiser movie adaptation, Hellraiser 3 movies adaptation, Hellraiser Summer Special and Hellraiser Holiday Special, which <laughs> like you've sent us the cover art for that before, because I remember yeah. contacting you about Marvel's Holiday Comics and we were just like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we may have to come back to that and just do a holiday Hellraiser Holiday Special episode because that's it's a good one. All right, Dan, you're coming back. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to ask you to come back. Got to solve that uh -oh. email puzzle once again. Exactly. <laughs> it was also a big year on the big screen for Hellraiser because in September of 1992, Hellraiser 3 was released, grossing $12.5 million in the box office. This one was directed by Anthony Hickox with Clive Barker as one of the screenplay writers. And mm -hmm. this film followed the creation of the most famous of the Cenobites, Pinhead himself. 1993 to 94 brought us Pinhead in six issues, and during that time frame, we also saw Pinhead versus Martial Law, Law in Hell, in 1993, and that was published in two issues. <laughs> I didn't even know about that. 
Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a ton of stuff. I, as I was going through here, I was like, and I read a little bit of everything. It was all very interesting. It's been a lot. I've been jumping right in. Pat O'Neill, like, hate, you know, is a brilliant writer and just takes the piss out of everything and hates everything in a way. And <laughs> so, you know, he hated superheroes and I'm sure hated Pinhead. So, like, you, you know, it's, it's I've like read a, a bunch of the old martial law stuff, too, because Marvel at the time had Strip, which was like that magazine anthology thing that they were doing yeah. in the UK. Martial law is brilliant, I think. Yeah, yeah. it was great. And then from 1993 to 94, we had Clive Barker's The Harrowers uh, mm-hmm. with six issues. Right. Which was not specifically, well, yeah, I guess it was Hellraiser-ish, but yeah, it was the harrowing of hell, but its own thing. Yeah, right? yeah. And I think that had that was directly connected to another of Clive Barker's books, uh, the second book that he did, The Scarlet Gospel, where the group talks about them being the harrowers. And then right. I think yeah, it comes and- up in a film as well. They're they're tied to the last illusion, which was the supernatural detective series Barker was doing, and that had yes. a movie itself with Scott Bakula called The Lord of Illusions, which is right, that's okay, right, right. And there was there was a Barker verse that Marcus McLaurin was the editor on, which right, which the Harrowers. There was a um, there were several other titles that were Hokum and Hex. I think so, was one of them. Yeah, Hokum and Hex. Um, I yeah. want to say. I can't remember the other ones, but there were several that were concepts he had developed and then were, you know, allowed, the creative teams were allowed to then expand on those. Jessica found me one because the first issue of, uh, I think it's Hyperkind, has like a foil cover and she was like, well, this Mm. is going to Mike's collection. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, and 1994 was effectively the end of the Hellraiser comics with Epic, publishing mm-hmm. Clive Barker's Hellbreed in three issues and one issue of Hellraiser Spring Slaughter. Mm-hmm. And while Hellraiser slipped out of the comic scene, it dipped its toe back into the proverbial water once again in 1996 with the release of Hellraiser Bloodline on March 8th. Mm-hmm. And this focuses on the Le Marchand box, following the creator of this elaborate puzzle box back in the 18th century France, bringing the past to come face to face with the present. And this one only grossed 9.3 million in the box office. So, you know, we're, we're dipping a little bit. It was not well received at the time. It's kind of gotten <laughs> no. more favorable retrospective since then. But it's yeah. Yeah. And then it did take another four years, that being said. (laughs) But in October of 2000, we were brought to home theaters, uh, Hellraiser (laughs) Inferno, which Uh features a dirty cop. That's that's all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) The bad lieutenant, you know, and Pinhead, you know. Basically, yeah. So this film and the next few upcoming movies did not have theatrical releases, by the way. Mm-hmm. So no box mm-hmm. office infos for them. Uh, October 15th, 2002 brought us Hellraiser Hellseeker, which follows Kirsty, who's somehow pretty much probably good therapy, blocked and does not remember the trauma of the hellish events at her father's home and in the asylum. Yeah. And she's also getting married to the dude that plays Mayhem in those insurance commercials, who also ends up getting dragged into, of course, Puzzle Box shenanigans. Well, that would be a great like wedding gift, right? For somebody who, if the, if the wedding wasn't <laughs> right. working out, it's sort of like, yeah. here, honey, I got this for our anniversary. You know? <laughs> the puzzle box is the cake topper. Exactly. <laughs> There's got to be a wedding cake with that theme somewhere. Oh, oh, oh sure. there, oh, there has to be. So, 2005 was interesting because it brought to us both Hellraiser Debtor on June 7th about a reporter investigating a group that can 
somehow resurrect the dead, which, by the way, the Cenobites not happy about. And Mm -hmm. Hellraiser Hellworld on September 6th with Superman himself, Henry Cavill, playing a complete Chad. But it follows a group of video game kids who get an invite to play a special game of strategy, which is, as you guessed, a ticket directly to Leviathan's Hell. (laughs) And Guys, there's no other Hellraiser activity until 2011 when, boom, studios got a hold of mm-hmm. the property. I always feel like I have to say it that way. They have the exclamation you do. point. You do. And they started making new works with the franchise. It started with Hellraiser, classic title. Got to stick mm-hmm. with it when you get back into it. They did also release 20 issues, hearkening back to that first 20-issue run that you guys did, which I thought was kind of fun. And that was published 2011 to 2012. And then Hellraiser Masterpieces, which was what you were talking about, uh, Mike, being published in 12 issues during 2011. Yeah. And a lot of these are available on Hoopla, which is how we were able to read a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then in 2012, we got four issues of Hellraiser The Road Below. Hellraiser The Dark Watch was printed from 2013 to 2014 over 12 issues. And picking up from 2014 to 2015, we got six issues of Hellraiser Bestiary. And finally, in 2017, Seraphim Inc. published a series of original graphic novels titled Hellraiser Anthology, and that was printed all in one year in two volumes. Isn't Seraphim, uh, I think, Clive's imprint? I think. But, oh. Or his. I believe so, but I could be wrong. I thought that was his. Oh. But I, to I Google. Completely wrong. Yeah, to, to Google. Google. <laughs> to the Google cave. Yeah, I didn't know that, actually. That would make a lot of sense as to why they're doing an anthology printing of these. But I could be wrong, so it just seems to... Oh, Mike will investigate for us. I saw him pull his phone and I was like, we're good. He'll figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) He'll fact check us and let us know. I'll move on. Uh, I I think it is. Yeah, Clive Barker, Graphic Novels, Seraphim's Hellraiser Anthology. Yeah, it looks like it's his thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. We'll leave it in. We will leave it. We fact checked you. Don't worry. You're good. There were a slew of other canceled projects peppered throughout the gears, including several video games that never made it past production or were instead turned into simple Bible games about Noah's Ark. Uh, and that's Noah joke. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and there <laughs> did, did that one hurt a little bit more I, than I, anything the Cenobites could do to you. Uh, if if the chains didn't come sweeping out from the sides of your screen at that exact <laughs> moment, you're you're probably pretty safe. You know, Pinhead, I think, did show up as a character in Dead by Daylight, though. I think that was pretty recently. Oh. Because Dead by Daylight's oh, like a survival horror game where it's like it's a cooperative gameplay and then you have to fight against another player who's playing the monster and they have original characters, but then they've had like Freddy Krueger, I think. I'm pretty okay. sure that Pinhead was a recent one. Okay. Nice. Oh, I didn't see that. They've also had uh, Michael Myers. Uh, they, they've gotten a lot of like really good characters out of mm-hmm. horror franchises. They haven't gotten Jason because he had his own game at the same time. And the legal yep. rights for that are all complicated. Well, yeah. and what's interesting about that is that there were also also reportedly talks of a crossover with Pinhead and Michael Myers and yeah. between Hellraiser mm. and Candyman, but neither of those concepts got off the ground. Mm-hmm. So. He was supposed to show up at the end of Freddy versus Jason, too, but they couldn't get the rights. 
Yeah. And part of what I was reading was they were worried that it was going to either not be the same vibe or not be the right vibe for that kind of horror style, which I mean, makes sense. Like they they are kind of a little bit different in in the way that they function, but also they didn't want to take away from the, the other two characters by also putting this other character in there from what I was reading online. So mm-hmm. I don't know. So now that we've run through the vast array of Hellraiser media, uh, let's let's chat a little bit more with our guest here. Dan, what was your involvement, if any, in the later comics or movie adaptations? I stayed pretty involved in the in the comics, uh, probably all the way you know through to um, well the Pinhead series. You, you know, I, I guess you know, and that was like around where the the crash you know of, of comics mm-hmm. were. But I was uh, you know I remained the consulting editor on the on the anthology, which was just my shameless way of staying associated with my godchild, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, you know, allowing myself to have some, some say, and I had some cred with Clive. And so that was a way to maintain that, that thrust. Um, and I think I, you know, I know I did contribute stuff. Marcus and I had a great relationship. So I think I was a good sounding board and I could contribute other ideas or say what not. And then the ridiculousness, and let's be honest about it. I think the ridiculousness of the, um, the holiday special, the summer special, you know, they have these little branching stories that try to, to tie together the pieces. You know, those were also strategic things because we had so much inventory from having purchased way too much stuff earlier on to try to make sure that we were ahead of schedule, that we had to get rid of this stuff. And so, you know, those were ways to kind of then, all right, let's put this stuff out there, you know, in, in a different, you know, format that could complement the regular book, which was the same reason for the poster book and a couple of other things like that, which was we had commissioned a lot of single illustrations for those in-between pages. You know, that was always intentional with the initial comic design was that you'd have a story, we'd have a filler illustration, we'd have another story, we'd have another pinup, but you ended up with a lot of pinups that didn't have a home because the book's frequency did not allow for us to include everything. So that's why there was a a Hellraiser poster book, which was actually pretty extraordinary because it had top-notch illustrations of all these crazy Cenobites. So I, I would stay involved with with all of that in one form or another. And then the Pinhead comic, which, you know, in retrospect was like, nah, that doesn't really make sense. But we tried to make it make sense as much as we could. And I think it, it kind of holds up. It was also a friendly baton pass uh, for my friend Eric Saltzgaber, who wanted to get more involved in comics. So intentionally, I was going to take it through. He, he co-plots or co-writes with me, I believe, like those first five or six issues. And then I I handed it off to him intentionally. That was always meant my quote-unquote name value was going to carry it a little bit further, and then it was going to become his thing. Mm. That was really probably the last thing that I worked on in the Hellraiser comics world that I can you know, mm. recall. I didn't do anything with the Hellbreed or the Spring Slaughter pieces. Were there any Hellraiser stories you wanted to write but didn't get the chance to? And if so, what were they? No, I mean, that's a bad answer, right? Uh, no, that's the end of the answer. No, I mean, I, I and, and I did appreciate it at the time, and I appreciate it even more now. Like, I, I had pretty free reign, and I had a lot of influence, and I had a lot of, you know, I direct line to, to Clive, you know, direct line to Marcus, you know, I was recognized within that world as being a dude, the godfather, I guess, and uh, or a godfather. So if I wanted to write a story for the anthology, Marcus would take my pitch and I pretty much knew in the world enough to do a good, good pitch. If I had wanted to go in and say, 
hey, I got this idea for this offshoot thing. What do you say? I think there was a pretty good chance it would have been approved. And when you get to Jihad, the Hellraiser Nightbreed thing, which the genesis of was once Clive had done Nightbreed, and then he gave us the Nightbreed comic, you know, it was sort of the natural genesis for the way his mind worked to say, okay, now what are you going to do with my two properties? You know, (laughs) which was not even like a combination that we would have thought about, but he was able to manage the different companies and say, you're going to allow us to do something that crosses over these properties between New World and Morgan Creek. But he gave me free reign on that. And that was probably one of the most fluid stories that I was able to, to just channel in a lot of ways. That was a an extraordinary experience to write because all these pieces just appeared on the page. And I felt more like I was doing almost spirit writing with that than I was having to actually plot it out because we had so firmly positioned with that Bible that the Cenobites were disciplined and the Nightbreed were obviously, you know, off the leash trying to lead their lives. They were the personification of, of good chaos, right? In their own way. Mm-hmm. So what better friction? And I pitched that back to him and I said, well, what, what about this? And that shouldn't really work. You know, I kind of like roll my eyes when you started to say like, well, you know, they were going to combine Pinhead with Candyman. They're going to find Pinhead with Michael Myers. Probably those wouldn't have worked, but neither should Hellraiser and Nightbreed. And I think that works mm. pretty damn well, pun intended. Mm. <laughs> well, so question for everyone. There were quite a few versions of puzzles that led to the Cenobites hell. Mm-hmm. And it's been established that puzzles can be made out of almost anything and found almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what was your favorite puzzle? You know, I'm going to go back to that Dwayne McDuffie one, even though that's a pretty silly story intentionally. I just think the idea of that you've completed something of your own making mm. without any intention that it then becomes a puzzle. Uh, mm. You created mm. the puzzle yourself yeah. was, a, was a pretty neat conceit in its own way, you know, that you've been puzzling over this without expecting it. And your solving of this thing suddenly becomes you know, the genesis for a very crazy little, little bit of exchange and not the traditional one but that certainly was a a a neat bit for me yeah it was that's kind of like mine too because i liked in songs of metal and flesh Mm -hmm. there's this music prodigy who you know he's crippled by another musician and he gets revenge by basically writing a concert whose music itself is the puzzle and right you know and and what Mm -hmm. he does is he can't figure it out on his own and so he kind of mutilates himself and then draws notes around the bloodstains that fall and then the concert mm-hmm. is the puzzle that is unlocked as it's being mm-hmm. played and the Cenobites show up and basically take the entire orchestra his rival and the audience it's i thought that was really yeah. cool yeah right. i did too actually that was a really good use of that and maybe i'm a little basic but i really like the idea that architecture and buildings can be a puzzle mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. during one of the comics there is the realization that the different elevator stops were like giving the people a combination to unlock something mm-hmm. and so that was a really kind of fun thing as well right uh, yeah i think both those are, are great examples and so something we may needed to have been more overt with like in the stories or the explanations mm-hmm. or, or such but that the lamont configuration while it's obviously the most iconic puzzle and remains so with the, the new movie mm-hmm. based upon the Bible and the, the larger mythology was one puzzle type, right? So there were yeah. other ways to solve. Solving puzzles in their own way becomes just a way into, into this particular hell. Yeah. Exactly. And an odd question, but do either of you have a favorite Cenobite? <laughs> <laughs> um, I created a lot of them. Um, 
or you know, quite a few <laughs> of them. So um, Atkins was fun. It was obviously named after Peter Atkins, <laughs> director and the, the screenwriter. And he was sort of like this, this um, gun-fueled character. The face character from mm-hmm. before, I think, yeah. just had that, that power and that gravitas and that interesting aspect. Uh, Jan had done a, a great job with that. And there was a librarian. Balbarus, who cool. was sort of like this, mm. you know, she was pretty twisted. But, you know, iconographically, I think you get back to Pinhead and having met and been to a couple parties with Doug Bradley, that was always what? a very weird, weird moment. I know. <laughs> As my mouth there, opens in shock. Yeah. Sta- standing there, it's like, you know, having Christmas drinks with Doug and but sort of like, you don't have any pins in your face. You know, it uh, probably stands out a little Ooh. bit more many years ago. Uh, but I think, I think Pinhead stands alone, you know, in, in terms okay. of representing so much yeah i mean i'm right there with you like it he's just kind of like the most iconic Mm -hmm. i really like especially in the films the chatterer yeah and i like i like him because you can hear him before you see him and you know he's coming and i'm just like oh (laughs) and it's just he's such a grotesque character too i mean his face is just all the way folded back i mean Mm -hmm. like the inside of his skin is exposed it's like yes he's got it going on yeah and nick vince is such a handsome guy (laughs) 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 a little little torture on clive's part there final question for you guys and be honest please if you found a random puzzle box somewhere (laughs) Would you try to solve it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think so. I think that's the inherent nature of the stories within here is that that intrigue is going to force you to, yeah, oh, oh, wait, if I twist this, something happens and something else, one more thing, you know, it's, and one thing leads to another. I don't think I'd go to solve the puzzle as we see it in many of these instances where it's in the, the evil guy's basement lab with the dark lights and the loose sight and stuff. It's like, oh, come solve this puzzle for me. Um, that might, that might be a bit <laughs> of a lead, but if you were to find this thing in a, in a, an antique shop or a salvage yard or something like that, or, you know, Oh, what's this? I think you would, you could see the obsession developing, right? And the obsession <laughs> leads to those qualities that the Cenobites want and that the hell represents. So I think I would try. But I'm bad at puzzles, so I probably never get to hell. That's literally what I wrote in my notes was like, yeah, I'd probably do it, but I'm also really, I probably wouldn't be very good at it. Like, I'm, I'm uh-huh, like I've yet uh-huh. to solve a Rubik's Cube in my 40 years on this planet. Right, right, right. I would, knowing me, I would, I would go hard for like probably a few hours, but if I couldn't figure it out or if I couldn't get anywhere with it, I would set it down and it would collect dust in my house, just like all of my other ADHD fixations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this is great. You've been posting on social media about how you're working on a new comic. Yes. What can you tell us about this project and how can we and our listeners support and buy it when it's available? Please buy it, everyone. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I can't give away too much on it. It's a long gestating project, way too long. And, I, and I'd love to actually come back at some point when it's real and tell you the whole backstory. But it is literally a, for one reason or another, sort of 20 year in the making you know, type of idea that came forward many years ago, got derailed. I lost touch with the the artist Carl Waller. You know, we reconnected a couple of years ago and almost immediately said to each other, hey, you remember that idea? 
And so I, I buy into this thought that I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert had put forward in this book, Big Magic, where ideas visit themselves onto you. And if you don't do something with them, they say, fuck you, and they go to somebody else. And that other person's going to end up doing something with them. So I think this is our chance to actually do something with what I think is a pretty great idea. It's a horror idea. It's got a fair amount of snark in it. It's got some devils, if you want to call them that. There's truckers, so it's a little bit of a damnation delivery <laughs> service, if you want. I've written about 12 issues of it so far. It's got multiple storylines, and we'll probably do one storyline at a time, whether it's with a publisher or a, a Kickstarter. Right now, it's probably leaning more toward a spring Kickstarter type thing. That's what I'm trying to go on. But Carl needs to kind of get a, a massive art done that we can actually get to that point. But I've had it described by... A couple of people have read it. Uh, the best description I've heard so far is it's like the good place meets from dusk till dawn, which I think Ooh, would be a pretty great, great on board cover this. blurb. Say less. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Car Carl's art is pretty <laughs> off the hook. The stuff you've seen so far that I've been posting, and I, I think I post once or twice a week, just little panels. That's the normal stuff. And the normal stuff already looks pretty crazy. So when he starts to kind of dial it up and get into the, the real meat, and a dementia of it, as it were, it's really, I think, going to cook. So what I will do is as it gets closer, I don't want to just say to people, this is the title, this is what it's about, this is what it is. I want to hold, keep the powder dry, but I would definitely appreciate your guys' support and getting the word out for people to either look for it from this publisher, if we end up going that route, or here's where the Kickstarter is and we could use people's support. So I appreciate that. We will well, happily we have, have you on to have you on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. There'll be a lot more to talk Thanks. about it then. And I, I think the backstory is pretty, pretty cool about it. Well, thank you so much. Well, listeners, that's been our Hellraiser overview. And from here, I think we're going to mosey on to our uh, brain wrinkles. So yeah, we have found ourselves at brain wrinkles. And that's one thing comics or comics adjacent that's been kind of rattling around in your brain this week or in the in the recent mm. past. And Mike, do you want to give us an example? Yeah. So I have been thinking about the evolution of horror and sexuality because we have <laughs> a new Hellraiser movie coming out. And according to mm -hmm. Twitter, the director, David Bruckner, maybe made a comment at Fantastic Fest. And it was basically BDSM is different now. My mom reads Fifty Shades. <laughs> so what if the Cenobites were their own leather? And then Along with that tweet, there were images of Pinhead and another Cenobite that are, they're kind of noteworthy because they're, they're not dressed in black leather. Instead, they're dressed in a mix of skin and exposed muscle. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, basically that in itself becomes their own costume. And I keep thinking about how these concepts have really evolved since the original Hellraiser debuted in the 80s. And like the best horror stories, I think, are relevant reflections of what's currently going on in society. Like, I remember reading mm -hmm. somewhere that the slasher genre came about as a reflection of economic anxiety in society. Basically, it's probably why I find myself charmed when I watch horror movies from more than a couple of years ago, because like they feel <laughs> they feel sort of quaint. And if you look at remakes of things like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, nobody's really talking about them after they come out because they don't really try to do anything new or really reflect mm -hmm. anything societally mm -hmm. on more than a surface level. But by comparison, last year's Candyman was excellent because it not only delivered a solid slasher movie that continued the mythology, but it was mm -hmm. also really relevant because it focused on things like 
societal racism and corrupt authority figures. And I just, I, I think about how good horror has to continue to evolve because they mm-hmm. end up serving as these interesting moments in amber that let us look back and kind of think about what was going on for us culturally at the time. And P.S. I'm really excited about the new movie because the reviews are coming out and they're great. (laughs) And it's dropping the day after this episode does. I I love that. I love that whole thought. It's wrinkled my brain. And I think you're right. I mean, I I think that's why Hellraiser set a tone. And I think this is what Clive really represented and and probably still does represent in, in the work that he does. He went places that we weren't going, that we weren't comfortable going. And he drug us along with him because he had an imprint and a, and a name value and allowed us to sort of look at things and, and horror, especially, you know, or dark fantasy or whatever you want to call it. And I think Hellraiser represents that dark fantasy as much as it does horror because the hell, the Cenobites are okay with what they're doing. This is their mission, actually, mm-hmm. certainly in the comics. And I think in the movies, they're not the villains, right? They are what mm-hmm. you want to interpret them on. What's your pleasure, sir? Maybe my pleasure is angels. Maybe my pleasure is demons. You know, one way or another, you're going to get it. And I think, um, I think there's something to that. And I think horror, um, I love the quaint thing. I hadn't really thought about that, but that's so, so very true. Um, you know, the two things I've seen recently, like Hereditary and Midsommar, mm, are both right. movies I'll never watch oh. again. You know, they're, they're, they're like, what the fuck did you just do to me? What did I just do to myself? Brilliant movies, right? Dude, but maybe five years, yeah, yeah. But maybe five years from now, I'll watch it and I'm like, yeah, I'm okay with that telephone pole. No, not really. Ugh. But um, <laughs> but my brain wrinkle, aside from you know Mike building on yours, which is excellent, and this is I guess adjacent, maybe, mm-hmm. is just the stuff that's going on with artificial intelligence art. Enough, you guys have been mm-hmm. looking at things yeah. like Mid Journey mm-hmm. or Dolly Two, Crayon AI, and these type of things. You know where people are creating art based upon textual prompts right text i write that i want to see a puzzle box you know in a green field surrounded by butterflies and having a picnic with pinhead and something's going to be generated from that or something much more original i think that's fascinating you know these these things that come out of it the other side of it are sometimes amazingly precise and sometimes they're distorted fever dreams which is interesting in its own right But it's also interesting, okay, where does this go? You know, where does this stop scraping other people's artwork, which is a big controversial thing right now, and where does it then start to generate its own thing? Does that take away from art or does it empower people like me more who want to create something, but I don't have that ability, but I have this imagination. I could write you a description. And does that mean that it's any less if that machine does it for me than partnering with an artist? and quote-unquote artists mm. i don't know mm. it's 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 stuff to think about yeah yeah that's all really super interesting and mine's also a little kind of on the the same vein of of thought process as far as like bringing hellraiser into it and i've been thinking about the way that we think about concepts and i really like hellraiser for the reason i said before that the puzzle box isn't just a puzzle box it's all of Mm -hmm. these different things and it's it's a concept the the concept of a puzzle and Mm -hmm. thinking about other properties where can we take the bones of that property and make it into something different that still vibes in that same direction i think hellraiser did a really good job of that but i feel like there are so many other concepts that could also again think outside the box and Mm -hmm. go Mm -hmm. in different directions like hellraiser did you know conceptually and i i would love to see more of that i don't 
think we get a lot of that in in media. It's not thought provoking and it's not thoughtful in the mm-hmm. way that it's produced. It's usually just a cash grab, you know, for being real. I mean, you know, a recent example of that would be the new Predator movie, Prey, that just came out on Hulu. Yeah. And I mean, that was yeah. excellent. And it told a totally unique story while still adhering to the right. core Predator mythology. And I mean, I'm also very lucky in that I have a partner who, as soon as I told her about it, I'm like, yeah, it's set in like the 1700s and it's starring a Lakota young woman <laughs> who, yep. and Sarah yep. was just like, fuck, I'm in. Yep. <laughs> And the other thing is, it is a great movie on its own because, like, it is beautifully photographed. They do all these beautiful sweeping landscapes. I keep thinking about stuff like that. Or, you know, like I said, the new Candyman also came out and that was Mm -hmm. solid. And, like, I don't have a problem with revisiting old ideas and continuing to further them in ways that are meaningful. I like that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But not not a frame by frame duplication. No, we don't need Gus Van Sant's Psycho again. That was not a thing we needed ever. No, (laughs) no, no, we didn't. No, I mean, we were really lucky with the comic, you know, just to go back to that as we sort of wrap up, you know, just again, that, that, that giving spirit uh, of Clive, and I I can't overemphasize that enough, you know, was very unique. I do not think is the ordinary sort of sense, especially from somebody who is the creator of a, a mythos in a world like that, to then expand it in that way with so many creative partners and to be so flexible about that. And I think comics were a perfect medium. You know, Mike, you were saying at the beginning or maybe before we started, how much of the comics ends up getting referenced in some of these Hellraiser wikis because we did expand the world based upon that permission he gave us and his excitement about what other people would do with it. It wasn't, it's mine, you can't only do this. It was the excitement and I think he... I know he trusted us. I know he trusted me. I know he trusted Marcus to be good stewards of his world, which was a responsibility we took really responsibly. Yeah, it's really funny because if you do go look at the Hellraiser wikis, half of the citations are for various comics, but a lot of them are for the original (laughs) epic series, which is really kind of cool, I think. Like, you know, is that it's part of this canon mythology. I was a good godfather, apparently. (laughs) <laughs> you love that title this, so much this will never get old oh for my me. gosh i'm so glad that jessica could give that to you give me give I'm me a so screen grab of that. yeah i'm so glad oh you my found goodness that. gracious yeah <laughs> you're just gonna have to pull that first page out of his forward and frame it on the wall or something i am i am <laughs> well dan thank you again so much for joining us thank this has you, been guys. such a pleasure as always to to speak with you and to interact with you and you just you have such a good information to bring about some of these kind of back information that we don't know about, about the actual making of these comics. So that's really neat for us, at least for me. I'm not going to speak for Mike, but I, I think I can in this in this case. I'll allow it. You'll allow it this time? Perfect. <laughs> I normally wouldn't. And for the rest of you, we'll see you next week for another Dollar Bin Discovery. But until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Dan Chichester, written by Jessica Frazier, and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank who is at lookmomdraws.com. I invite folks to stay in touch with me and see what I'm doing 
more recently, including more previews of the comic we talked about on my weekly newsletter, which is found at storymaze.substack.com. And I have a lead-in premium for new subscribers. It's a free subscription. And the new premium that will be active as you're listening to this will actually be that Hellraiser comic Bible. This was the original Bible and series guidelines that was sent out to creators back in 1989. So I'm releasing that out to the public for subscribers. So sign up for a free weekly subscription and you get a copy of the Bible to go along with your nightmares and puzzle solving. Guys, it's so cool. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop and comic book writer. <laughs>